Hey everybody, this is Pastor Nathan, and unfortunately, all we have is the audio this week. We got some new audio equipment last week, and uh, it decided to let us down, and so we lost all our audio. So this week, we're just doing the podcast. Um, I titled this message, Throw Your Hands Up, and people can throw their hands up for all kinds of reasons. Uh, You could throw them up in celebration. Uh, Not much of that going on this year with the Chiefs games, although they did win on Sunday. Uh, But we had an awesome celebration this past Thursday when we went to Andrew Sharp's wedding. And as they ran down the tunnel of sparklers, everybody had their hands raised up. Uh, It was a joyous experience. Uh, You can also throw your hands up in frustration. And you can throw them up in surrender. And then, of course, we throw our hands up in worship as well. And for the Christian, like, it's all of these. Like, we live in a world of conflict and friction. But the beautiful thing about coming together and worshiping as a body is that we raise our hands in surrender. We release our frustrations and we celebrate the one who delivers us. I was reading a newspaper journal that was doing a story on a world conflict, and they reported this incredible statistic. Since the beginning of recorded history, the entire world has been at peace less than 8% of the time. In its study, the periodical discovered that 3,530 years of recorded history, only 286 years saw peace. In excess of 8,000 peace treaties have been made and broken. And since 650 BC, there have also been 1,656 arms races, only 16 of which have not ended in war. The remainder ended in the economic collapse of all the countries that were involved. So some pretty messy statistics there, but that's actually outdated information. I think those studies were done in the late 80s, early 90s, and safe to say we've had quite a bit of conflict since then. We are entering the last chapter of Philippians, a letter that Paul wrote in the midst of conflict, jailed up in Rome, and it would have been easy to despair, but he picks up his pen and puts before us this message of joy. And it's no accident that when Paul wrote out the fruits of the Spirit that he chose to start off with love, joy, and peace. Because if you had to sum it up, you could simply say, if you really love God and you come to understand how much he loves you, then you'll have joy. Joy that doesn't make sense to other people because it persists even in hard times. And that love, which produces that joy, will result ultimately in peace. And we live in a day where a lot of people talk about love, lots of love talk, but they don't have much joy and certainly not a lot of peace. Uh, What they're talking about is happiness, right? And that's what companies are marketing to you, happiness. But joy and peace in the middle of life's worst are available to the follower of Jesus. Last week, we talked about where our true citizenship lies. Uh, Grateful to be born in America, obviously, but first and foremost, our passports are stamped for heaven. Uh, But while we're waiting, we're to be walking, walking with partners. Paul tells the churches, imitate me and also look to to those that are more mature in the faith. A few weeks ago, we talked about spiritual maturity, and today we're going to talk about spiritual stability, following in the footsteps of those examples and walking as partners. Uh, We're also to look out for pretenders, lots of fake citizens out there, false teachers leading people astray into a different gospel than the one that was given to us. Um, They may know the language and the customs of the kingdom, but 
they don't conform to the laws of the land. Uh, so we need to use discernment and we need to be grounded in truth so that we're not deceived. And we also talked about waiting for a place in a king. Uh, we're headed to heaven and that should give us a lot of comfort, gang. Uh, our king is there. Our address is there. The believers who've gone before us are there. Sons, daughters, brothers, sisters, moms, dads, spouses. More important than that, the street that you live on here, more importantly, is the one that you're going to be walking on up there. And the last point last week was true citizens will get a promotion. Uh, these lowly bodies are going to be transformed and glorified. Uh, nobody is going to have a problem with the way they look when they get to heaven. Uh, I just turned 45. So I had to go in for a procedure this week. And I remember thinking at the time, I cannot wait for my glorified body. I'm ready. Uh, today, Paul finishes the second half of his thought from last week. So let's read it together. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Sintiki to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together, with Clement and the rest of my, follow, of my fellow workers, whose names are written in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonables be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. I say this is the other half of Paul's thought because um, of the last verse in our portion last week. It says, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Now, Paul's listing out a lot of things so far in this letter, and we're thinking, okay, Paul, how is that all going to happen? By his power, by his power, a power that enables him to subject or to bring under control all things, and not most things, all things, right? All things are under his control. All things will be made right, and the culture's values and priorities, they're all wrong. They're all mixed up but he can and he will make things right. Heaven will answer every question. It'll solve every problem and it'll right every wrong. Uh, Paul starts off, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Based on that, Paul leads off this chapter, chapter four, by saying, therefore, stand firm in the Lord. This is the same phrase Paul uses in chapter one, stand firm. It's a military term to hold your ground, make a decision in your mind that you're going to stand firm. And in this final chapter, Paul wants us to have a settled mind. Chapter one, we talked about having a single mind. Chapter two was all about having a submitted mind. Chapter three, a simple mind. And now today, as we go into chapter four, it's a settled mind. Verse two, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Now, I don't know if that's how you pronounce their names, but that's what I'm going with. Uh, just imagine you're all gathered in this house church, right? Church in Philippi. You've got Epaphroditus. You've got Lydia. You've got Clement. You've got the Philippian jailer and his family. And one of the elders walks in and he's like, hey, everybody, we got a letter from Paul. And he holds it up and everybody's really excited. You're on the edge of your seats because you want to hear what Paul has to say to you. And he starts to make his way through this letter and he comes to chapter four. Now, obviously there weren't chapters back then, but he comes to this portion in the letter and Paul 
loved to mention people by name. He had an awesome memory. It always amazes me at the end of his letters how he mentions people by name. But I wish these two women wish that he hadn't had such a good memory because here they're written down. Their names are recorded for all time. And he calls them out publicly, two women who aren't getting along and it's threatening the stability of the church. Now, we've been talking about spiritual maturity. Uh, as I said before, this is going to go over spiritual stability. Paul gives us some bullet points on how we can be spiritually stable and find peace. And the first thing we have to do is we have to resolve controversy, uh, entreat. Some, some translations use the word implore or beg, and he addresses them individually. He says, hey, Yodia, hey, Syntyche, I'm begging you guys, agree in the Lord. I do think this is important because it fosters some accountability. I mean, Paul could have written, I hear there are a few of you that aren't getting along. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to mention any names. No, he addresses both of them equally. He didn't have any favoritism. He also didn't write to the elders and say, you know, I need you guys to figure out what's going on, who's right and who's wrong here so that we can get to the bottom of it. Uh, he speaks right to them. Why did he do this? Because even if you're technically right, you can still be spiritually wrong. You can be technically right, but you can still be spiritually wrong because we are called as believers to forgive, right? And to have mercy, just as our Father has been forgiving and merciful to us. That's what we're called to do as well. So whatever it was, we know it can't be a doctrinal issue or a behavioral issue because Paul takes up a lot of his letters addressing doctrinal and behavioral problems within the church. I mean, just read Corinthians, right? Those guys were a bit of a mess. If it was one of those things, he would have tackled it head on. So that leaves us to assume that it was something kind of trivial, uh, something non-essential is what I call it. And I've said this a couple of times, uh, but in the essentials, we need to have unity. In the non-essentials, liberty. And in all things, charity. The essentials, it's not open to interpretation. This is what God's word says on the matter. If you don't like it, you're wrong. Sorry. Let God be true and every man a liar is what it says in Romans 3. The non-essentials, these are the gray areas. These are personal convictions and freedom. Um, you know, they were talking about in that day, should we eat meat or what day should we worship on? And today it would be, you know, should we take the vaccine? Um, you know, that's kind of just one example of what I would call a non-essential issue where there needs to be liberty and personal conviction. But then in all situations, there needs to be charity. There needs to be love. So in the essentials, unity, non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. Uh, these non-essential issues are splitting up the church right now. And it's sad because it's an attack of the enemy on the church. But I don't really hear it being called that. Uh, I hear a lot of people taking sides. And if Paul were here, I'm confident that he would tell us. He'd say, hey, First Baptist. Hey, Second Methodist. Hey, Third Evangelical. Whatever number you are, you guys need to knock it off. And you guys need to agree in the Lord. You know, cultivate harmony within the church. Uh, sometimes situational conflict is necessary. I mean, as in the case of Peter and Paul in the book of Acts, Peter was being hypocritical. He was hanging out with the Gentile believers. He was acting like a Gentile, eating hot dogs and pork sandwiches. And then when some Jews came down from Jerusalem, from headquarters, he started to distance himself from them and, you know, pretend like he wasn't part of that, that gang, wasn't enjoying that freedom. And Paul went up to him and said, you're wrong to be doing that. 
But in the non-essentials, Paul writes this in this first letter to the church in Corinth, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Now, Iodia and Syntyche were probably present at this church when it was founded. I mean, if you remember when Paul and Silas arrived in Philippi, there was no synagogue, uh, which meant there weren't even 10 men, 10 Jewish men in the town to start a synagogue. So they went down to the river. Uh, that's where the song comes from, down to the river. Um, no, but they went down to the river. They found all these women worshiping Yahweh, didn't know about Jesus. So Paul and Silas told them about Jesus. They got saved and they started this church in Philippi. So they were probably there. They weren't recent visitors to the church. So it just goes to show that even mature saints can get sideways from time to time, but were commanded to forgive and agree on the main thing, which is the Lord. Let's say in a hundred years time, your name was discovered in an old document. What one thing would you like the finder to learn? You know, like, would it be recorded that you were a kind and loving person, a mature follower of Christ? Uh, I certainly wanna, wouldn't want to be embarrassed like these two would have been to have their names recorded for all time. But it would appear that these guys had some prominence in the church since it says that they labored with him. Uh, verse 3, Paul says, Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, these two words, true companion, uh, are accurately translated yoke fellow, um, something that is yoked together like oxen pulling together, sharing a burden for the church together. And it sounds like he's addressing a specific person, this person who is labored with Paul. Uh, we don't know who he is, but while he addresses these women individually, he's asking this brother, this elder to facilitate peace. They have to do it but he's asking this elder to bring them together. Uh, kind of like when your kids are fighting with one another and you have to break it up and then you have to make them stand across from each other and apologize, right? Facilitate peace. Uh, then they have to hug it out. So I told my kids, you guys got to hug it out. Try to facilitate peace. Jesus says in Matthew uh, 5, 9, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Uh, he came here to be the prince of peace. We need to be like him. Uh, then he says, the rest of my fellow workers, like I can't list all of you, but you know who you are. And it's more important than getting recognition from me. It's more important that your names are written in the book of life. Uh, we said it last week. Jesus said, rejoice that your names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Jesus has a book and your name is in it. If you follow him, um, things get heavy, life gets hard, but the reality is, gang, we're headed for heaven. Like that old hymn, when the roll is called up yonder, then we can say we're present and accounted for, right? The second thing we need to be spiritually stable and find peace, we need to rejoice continually. Verse four, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Now, you guys know that pastors like to repeat themselves. So Paul says it twice. Uh, he's writing about joy from prison. If Paul can be joyful, then maybe there's something that he has tapped into. Uh, that should make even the skeptic pause and wonder. I mean, how can Paul, in the middle of a situation, be writing about joy? I heard it described this way. To rejoice is to put joy on display. To rejoice is to put joy on display. If the world is going to notice the light inside of you, then you got to put it on display. 
you weren't baptized in lemon juice, right? It was a joyful experience and we have to put him on display. Here's the reality. And what Paul is telling these Christians who are facing persecution, look, life's hard, guys, but God's good. Life's hard, but God's good. As children of a sovereign God, this is important. Listen to this. As children of a sovereign God, we are never victims of our circumstances. As children of a sovereign God, we are never victim of our circumstances. Why? Because he causes all things to work for good. We may not like our circumstances. They may stink, but we can still have joy because we serve a God who is sovereign over all things. He hasn't lost control of this planet. A.W. Tozer said, what comes to our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes to your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. Spiritual stability is directly related to how a person thinks about God. And we're going to talk about that here next week. But we need to rejoice continually. We have to make a choice to rejoice is what I say. Uh, It's a personal choice uh, to react to life's uncertainties and circumstances with faith. So you have to make that choice. When Jesus was giving his sermon on the mount... He asked everybody, said, why are you guys so worried about your life? God knows what you need. Uh, that's Nathan's paraphrase. But you don't see the birds flittering about uh, anxiously with their beaks and their wings, shaking their head, wondering why things are so bad. Uh, if God takes care of them, then he's certainly going to take care of you. Here's, here's an important point, because if we want peace in our life, if you want to feast on peace, then you need to rejoice because rejoicing sets the table for the feast of peace. If we want that present and abundant in our lives, then we need to be rejoicing. The next thing we need for spiritual stability and peace, we need to restore gentleness. Verse five, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Some translations say graciousness or kindness, but ultimately time is short. Jesus is coming soon. There's no time for this kind of conflict is what Paul's saying. And whether he comes back soon, I mean, you might say, yeah, Nathan, people have been saying that for 2000 years. Yeah, Jesus is coming back soon. Well, go ahead and put me down with all the theologians and all the Bible scholars who believed and put their faith that Jesus was coming back soon, even though they didn't see it. But the reality is whether he comes back in 30 days or you go to meet him in 30 years, the time is short. The Lord is at hand. And for those of you that have lost a loved one or experienced a broken relationship, you already know that life is short. Uh, That's what Paul's saying. Our time here is brief. So get along. I mean, you're going to be spending eternity with these people in heaven anyway. Might as well start now. Uh, We talked about this a few weeks ago, but the conditions have never been better for our light to shine. Our society is, is divided. It's less kind. It's less civil than it ever has been. Uh, That doesn't really require any elaboration. I think we'd all agree that we live in a time of great unrest. But if we want to change people, and we should, if we're followers of Jesus, we should want to change people and they need him. And the only way they're going to see him and you and me is if our joy is on display and they experience our sweet reasonableness. A spiritual stability belongs to those that are graciously humble. We need to be reasonable. We need to be charitable. We need to be graciously humble. 
Next, to be spiritually stable and to find peace, we need to reject anxiety. This is a big one. This is one of the most quoted verses in all of the New Testament. Here it is, Philippians 4, verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Now, who can guess what country contains the highest percentage of anxious people in the world? You got it. United States. We, we as a country have the most anxious people. Interestingly enough, we're followed number two by Canada and number three, England. So here you have three free, very prosperous first world countries that top the list of the world's most anxious people. Um, we have so much at our disposal and we're anxious because we either, we can't obtain it right? We can see it, but we can't get it or because we have it and we might lose it. Um, that's why we're not to be wrapped up in the things of this world with our mind on earthly things. Studies have actually shown that the greatest motivator for a person is not the prospect of gain, but the fear of loss. The fear of loss is actually the greatest motivator of people. We have so much to lose. Therefore we're anxious. So what's the cure for anxiety? If you're struggling in this area of your life, Paul gives us the answer. I'm about ready to solve the world's problems right here. As far as it goes to anxiety, uh, we need to pray, supplication, thanksgiving, and request. Prayer, supplication, thanksgiving, and request. These are the keys to overcoming anxiety. Uh, first one's prayer. Prayer really is just communion with God. It's focusing on God. Uh, we tend to think of prayer as a one-way communication where we dial up God, we give him all of our problems, and then we hang up. But could you imagine if you had a friend or if your child called you and started talking and listing out the things that they wanted you to take a look at to address and then just hung up the phone? I mean, communion with God really can be described as worship. And when we worship, we take our eyes off ourselves. We place them where they should be, directing our gaze at him. And that's what's so wonderful about our times of worship. That's the reason we usually sing before the message. It prepares our hearts to hear from the Lord. Uh, David, King David, was called a man after God's own heart. I think in large part because he was a worshiper. He made his fair share of mistakes. Obviously, we all know that. But he refocused on the Lord constantly, which is what we should do. Whenever we get off base, off track, we need to refocus, pray, come into communion with him. Now, the second thing is supplication. Now, supplication, this is what you might call turbocharged prayers. I think we're all familiar with these. Strong pleas to the Lord for help. Uh, it has a sense of urgency to it. Let me give you an example. In 2 Kings 18 and 19, we find King Hezekiah, who's ruling over the land of Judah at the time, when something urgent happens. Uh, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, was on the march. He was expanding his territory, and he was just obliterating every nation that they came up against. And they were headed for Jerusalem. Now, the thought of the Assyrians coming in was terrifying because they were a wicked, brutal people. Uh, they would impale their enemies on these gigantic spears, leave them up in the air. Uh, they had figured out a way to skin people alive. Uh, and then they would take the heads of their enemies, they'd pile them up in a gigantic pyramid. That way, when people were walking by the cities, they would see these pyramids of skulls and they would get the point. You know, you don't mess with the Assyrians. Uh, they would actually take their captives and put giant 
fish hooks through their lips, through their jaws, through their mouths, and they would link them together with a rope. And that's how they would lead off the captives into another country. Uh, this is what's coming to Jerusalem. This is what's coming their way, and they're starting to freak out. Now, Hezekiah understandably freaks out, but he doesn't react the way that he should. The first thing that he tries to do is he tries to bribe Sennacherib. Um, he takes all the silver in the temple, all of it in the treasury, and sends it off to Sennacherib. Not only that, it tells us that he took the gold that was overlaid on the temple doors and around the doorpost. He took all of that off and he sent that too. So he sent all that money, but it didn't work. He was still coming. He tried to solve it financially, but that didn't do it. So they were still on their way. He tried to make a secret alliance with their neighbor, Egypt. And he basically told them, look, you need to come help me. We need to fight him together. Maybe we stand a chance because if you don't and he defeats us, he's going to come defeat you next. So you need to come up here and help me. But when the Assyrian general and his entourage arrived at the wall, they mocked that plan. Apparently, um, their spies had heard about this attempted alliance and they said, Egypt is like a broken reed. Like they can't save you. If you lean on them, they're going to pierce your hand. And when Hezekiah heard this, he tore his clothes and he covered himself in sackcloth and he went into mourning. So he tried to solve it financially. That didn't work. He tried to solve it with a partnership with the world. Uh, Egypt in the Bible is always a symbol of the world. And now he finally does the right thing. He sends his men to go find the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah actually writes about this incident in his book in chapter 30. I'll read it to you. It says, ah, stubborn children, declares the Lord, who carry out a plan, but not mine, and who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek the shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore shall the protection of Pharaoh turn to your shame and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. God said, you guys have made an alliance, but not with me. In our hour of crisis, we need to go to the Lord. Um, what we tend to do is we tend to grab people. You know, we want to, you know, let's have coffee. Let's get together. I want to pour out my problems. I want to tell you, you know, what's going on. I need a listening ear. And we may even ask them for help or ask them to save us. But have we taken it to the Lord? Have we waited on him? Um, now, he may very well speak to us through books or through messages or through friends, but have you taken it to him first? And then you'll be able to discern whether or not that's his will for you. Sometimes we don't pray. Let's be honest. Sometimes we don't pray because we think it'll be ineffective. Uh, he didn't answer that prayer. Why would he answer this one? And God also always answers prayer. He always answers prayer. We just may not like the answer he gives us because no is just as much an answer as yes. Uh, not even Paul got all his prayer answered. Joy comes to those who trust in the Lord and in his will. Um, we may not get prayers answered the way we want, but joy comes to those who trust in the Lord and in his perfect will. Um, the third time Hezekiah gets it right, he sends his men to find Isaiah to pray for the nation. And Isaiah tells him not to worry. 
God's going to deliver his people. And at that time, what had happened is a king came down to do battle against Sennacherib. So he turned all his forces and he led them away from Jerusalem to go take on this threat. But before he left, he sent a letter to Hezekiah telling him, listen, don't think that your God has saved you. Because once we go deal with these guys, once we deal with this threat, we're coming back to deal with you. And here's where Hezekiah does the thing that he should have done at the beginning. Chapter 19, verse 14. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and he read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste to the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. Hezekiah made supplication for the nation, right? He made strong pleas. He didn't demand or try to command God. He didn't name it and claim it. He simply spread the letter out before the Lord. Now, God knew the situation. It wasn't like God was looking down saying, man, thanks, Hezekiah. Like, thanks for I wish you would have brought this to me earlier. Like, maybe I could have done something. No, it was all about Hezekiah getting his heart right, getting his priorities straight before the Lord. Now, notice why Hezekiah wanted God to save them. Yes, they wanted him to save their lives, but he also says that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. His priorities were finally in line and God saved him. And what happened was in the middle of the night, God sent an angel, one angel came down and slew 185,000 soldiers. One angel, 185,000 soldiers. And Sennacherib said, I think we'll go home now. Next up is Thanksgiving. So first we had prayer, then we had supplication. Now, Thanksgiving. This is always such an important component when we're speaking to the Lord. Uh, We have so much to be thankful for, Uh, whether we're in agony or whether we're in ecstasy. You and I can be grateful that our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Uh, If things are falling apart, please take comfort in the fact that our time here is but a vapor and we'll be in heaven for eternity with him. Um, the reason you're here today, hopefully the reason you're listening to this is because that is where your faith, your hope truly lies. So how can we pray and be thankful when times are bad? Uh, I tell you what, if you want to read some gritty prayers that include thankfulness, uh, just turn to the Psalms, man. David was a man after God's own heart and his prayers were songs. And most of the time they included some kind of difficulty. I mean, often you hear David saying, God, this stinks. Like these people are coming after me and they're dragging your name through the mud and they're trying to kill me. Help me, God. And he would always bring it back to praise and honor and thanksgiving. And that's one of the reasons why David was a man after God's own heart. Okay, lastly, we're to make our requests. Uh, These are typically what we think of when we think of prayer. Uh, We're bringing our list of things that we feel need to be addressed, that we'd like God to take a look at. But we are to be specific with our requests. Again, this is not demanding. It's not bartering with God. It's simply saying, Lord, 
you know this particular thing is going on in my life or maybe even in the life of somebody else. Our desire is for this outcome. This specific outcome is what we're asking for, Lord. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Part of joy is resting in the fact that God's ways are perfect, that he's already provided for us and he's already going to be with us regardless of whether or not we get what we want. He's going to be with us whether or not we get what we want. That's a comfort. We should be specific though. When you go to a restaurant, you don't, you know, you're very specific when you order. Uh, you, you know, if you want to try this, go to the waiter and just say, Hey, you know, um, I have a food need and I just like you to bless me in whatever way seems best to you. Uh, try that and let me know how it turns out. See what they bring you. Uh, but no, we're supposed to be specific with our requests. And when we encounter difficulties and trials, Uh, These are the tools that God uses to shape us more and more into the likeness of his son. And even when those happen, we still bring our request to him. We're to pray during good times and we're to pray during times of shaping. Worship, supplication, thanksgiving, and requests. These are the ways we talk to God. And here's the vital part. We listen. Like we tend to do all the talking, but we're also to listen. All of these things train us to hear his voice. And as you go through your day, just keep your eyes and ears open. I mean, he wants to hear from us. Why wouldn't he want to communicate back? The cure for anxiety and worry is to redirect it in prayer, prayer, supplication, thanksgiving requests. These are the keys to spiritual stability. And here's the result. Verse seven, And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Because he loves us, he saved us. And because he saved us, we can have joy no matter what. And when we think about his love and the joy that comes with that, we can experience a true peace. One that doesn't make sense to the outside world. Jesus told his disciples in John 14, he said, my peace I leave with you. My peace I give you, not as the world gives. Don't be troubled or afraid. I actually like the way it says it in the message translation. I'm leaving you well and whole. That's my parting gift to you, peace. I don't leave you the way you're used to being left, feeling abandoned, bereft. So don't be upset. Don't be distraught. We're not abandoned, guys. Paul says that it will guard our hearts and minds because he knows that the enemy will come at you in both ways. It's going to come after how you feel and what you know. We need to guard our minds. This means intentionally thinking on certain things and intentionally avoiding certain trains of thought. Like Satan plants a seed, and if we dwell on it, if we feed it, it's going to take us to places that we don't want to go. Um, I'll say this. Did you know not every thought you have is yours? Like not every thought, Satan sticks thoughts in your head. Demons put thoughts there to try to rattle you, to get you off track, to get you dwelling on the wrong thing. And we have to fight against that because if you don't, ultimately it's going to affect your heart. And when the Bible speaks to the heart, uh, it speaks of it as the seed of our emotions. I mean, that's where our feelings are. Um, I've said this before, but you know, God will change your heart but he won't change your mind. You have to change your mind, but God will change your heart. If you make the choice, and we're going to talk about this more next week. If you make the choice to change your mind, God will change your heart. Say, well, Nathan, how am I supposed to do that? I mean, Paul's 
you know, Paul's telling us to choose, to think intentionally. And he's going to tell us this next week, but I'm not going to make you wait that long. This is what he says in the very next verse that we're going to cover uh, this weekend. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think on these things. God will change your heart, but you have to change your mind. Make the choice to rejoice. Resolve in your mind that you're not going to give in to anxiety and fear, but that you're going to take it to the Lord in prayer. Just like that old hymn. What a friend we have in Jesus. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain be bare, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. And that's exactly what I'd like to do as we wrap up the service. People just gather together in groups of four or five and share one thing that's going on in your life. Uh, Find somebody in your life and just share with them what's happening. Release that to the Lord overcome anxiety and fear by taking it to the Lord in prayer. Because when we bear one another's burdens, gang, when we lift that up, we reject anxiety and we just accept the peace that only he can bring. Throw your hands up and give it to God. Throw it up in praise. Throw it up in supplication and prayer and just accept the peace that he brings. Amen. All right. We'll talk to you next week. The Father's love is a strong